Hey, Scene Vault listeners, are you a NASCAR collector? Well, we've got two great magazines for you. First up, we've got the 75 Greatest Drivers. Last season, NASCAR added 25 drivers to its Greatest Drivers list to celebrate their diamond anniversary, and we partnered with them to help tell their legendary tales. This 116-page magazine is packed with the stories that made each of these drivers the greatest we have ever seen. Printed in full color on glossy paper and delivered to fans inside a poly bag to protect its contents, this magazine will sit on the coffee tables of NASCAR fans for years to come. There are also several different covers to collect, including unique designs for Richard Petty, Dale Earnhardt, Jeff Gordon, and more. We've also got a few remaining copies of the 75th Anniversary Magazine, featuring hundreds of pages of photos, profiles, iconic stories, and much, much more covering every single year of NASCAR. Both of these are shipping in high-quality poly bags to protect your collector's item. Get yours today at dailydownforce.com shop. That's dailydownforce.com shop. Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at polepositionmag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey, y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's so, the first deal they built, I bet? No, no. You know, you, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had yeah. worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this, this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good. And then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappeared. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And it, it, as he said, it was a game of chicken and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy still when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. <laughs> So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast.
Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. I got out of the car, and I sat down on the ground with my, my face in my hands, thinking, well, that's the end of my future. That gave me hope and, and also got other people looking at me for the first time in my life going, this kid's got it. You know, this kid's got something. I almost wanted to cry because I'm thinking my career's over with and here they're going to play a joke on me. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And I am Rick Houston, and this is episode 50. Steve, can you believe it? We are now (laughs) middle-aged. Well, I'm going to tell you what's the truth. I hope that what happened to me when I turned 50 doesn't happen to this podcast, because when I turned 50, man, I fell apart. (laughs) My back hurts all the time. My metabolism stopped, and I just fell to pieces. Well, I don't even remember being 50 years old. Oh, come on, man. You can't throw me a pitch like that and not expect (laughs) me to take at least take a swing at it. Well... (laughs) But I'm going to let you off the hook this time. All right. We are going to let you off the hook this time because we've got a lot to talk about in this episode. Episode 50 is a big milestone, but Steve, episode 51, I really do believe is going to be very special because we are finally making this big announcement. We went down and we talked to Carrie Tharp last week at Darlington Raceway, and that episode is already edited. It's already ready to rock and roll. And just as a little bit of a tease, here is a short clip. Well, listen, it is my privilege and my honor, first of all, to be associated with, uh, with you two. I've known you two for as long as I've been in NASCAR, and I've always respected uh, the job that both of you all do, the passion you have for the sport. So it is my honor to announce that. Steve, what do you think? That's not much to go on, is it? Uh, no, but that should get people really <laughs> interested. I wouldn't want to miss it. It is a big announcement, and I believe that this is one of those cases where kind of the buzz and the lead up and kind of the teasing that we're doing, I really do think that it's going to live up to the hype. I think everything is going to pay off for the listeners. Absolutely. And in our first segment, we are going to share the very first part of the interview that you and I did with Dale Jr. at JR Motorsports in that awesome studio. One of these days, Steve. One of these days, Rick. I know what you're going to say. One of these days, Steve. (laughs) We are going to have a studio just like that. And it is going to be a shrine to Winston Cup scene, to Grand National scene, to all our friends in the sport. Yeah, it's going to be a pretty big deal. <laughs> Dream big, Rick. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. In this interview that we did with Dale Jr., the first part that we're going to share, he is pretty open and honest about how he got to the Bush Series. And he talks about his late model career, and he talks about how he landed his Bush Series ride. And let's just say he didn't exactly waltz into that deal. No, not at all. I'll tell you something. Dale Jr. was very enthusiastic, very outgoing, very forthcoming during the entire interview we had with him up there. And I think the reason for that is the subject matter we broached. His late model days, his Bush Series days, these were things that Dale got a chance to talk about that I don't think he did much talking to anybody before. And that's why I specifically mentioned his Bush Series career, because so many people have talked to him about his Cup Series career, 
And then obviously about the health issues that he's endured in the past few years that eventually caused his retirement. And let's not forget about his father. And they go into the relationship with his father. And certainly we touch on that. Yeah. But Steve, we didn't ask a single question about his dad other than one. I think I asked one about his dad's reaction to his first Bush series career. But he told us about his relationship with his dad anyway. We didn't Absolutely. I think it's kind of cathartic for him. So anyway, it is an awesome interview, and I think that people are going to get a lot out of it. And next week, he's going to talk about his very first Bush Series championship in 1998. And he said some things there that I had never heard. No, I hadn't either. I had heard, you know, about the scuffle in the trailer at Pikes Peak with Tony Stewart and with Tony Stewart's crew chief. But he said some things that I didn't know went on. Folks have got to listen. This is some stuff you've never heard before. And Steve, in our second segment, we're going to take a deep dive into the September 21st, 1995 issue of Winston Cup Scene. That issue covered Dover, but I happened to take it on a trip with me out to Kansas this weekend. Steve, I was stunned at how slam-packed it Absolutely. was with content. You gave me a copy of that issue this morning, Rick, and I got to tell you, it took me an hour to read a table of content. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's yeah. plenty of information in this one. It's quite an issue. It's much more than just covering Dover, of course. Now, over on Patreon, the offer is still on the table, and it's going to be on the table for quite some time because I've got a lot of papers from Jamie Bishop. $5 a month will get you one issue. $10 a month will get you two issues. Patreon.com slash the Scene Vault Podcast. If you'd rather do just a one-time show of support, it would be paypal.me slash the Scene Vault Podcast. Thank you so much for your support. Take it away, Dale Jr. So the earliest memory, Dale, that I have of you is you come rolling into Hickory with that Dooley and Gooseneck trailer, I guess it was. What was the grand scheme at that time? Were you going to run the Bush Series for X number of years and then move on up to Cup, or were you just racing at that point? I had no plans. <laughs> you know, Dad and I didn't talk about um, Xfinity. There was never mention of what we would do beyond that if things went well. It, I don't know that there was a lot of expectations on our success in the late model ranks between me, Kelly, or Carrie. And I think that's why Kelly's often considered by a lot of people as the better of the three at that time because her, her success was so surprising. Uh, she had no driving experience and basically came down to uh, – uh, she borrowed mine and Carrie's old street stock car that we had destroyed multiple times and <laughs> rebuilt. And yeah. so she had, you know, she ran that a few times and jumped right in the late model and she would run in, you know, fourth, fifth to 10th at Tri-County against some really good people, you know, really competitive cars. And, um, Carrie was struggling. He was crashing and, and having a hard time finishing races. And, um, I was down there in Myrtle beach running from, I, I wasn't winning a lot at all, but uh, I'd run second to fifth um, every night. And, you know, so it was just – it was an opportunity. Dad got a partnership from uh, Mom and Pops, and um, we put – you know, we got a chance to go race, and I don't think that anybody thought much would come of it, right? Um, we didn't have a whole lot of people that had a lot of faith in us, 
as as uh, race car drivers. Kelly would even say, even uh, you know, back in the mid '90s when we were starting, that she didn't ever think I was ever going to be a race car driver. Like I didn't yeah. have any sort of initiative to go that route. And um, so when we started racing late models, um, that's when I started taking it serious because I saw. Man, you know, this is these these cars are pretty good. This is fun. I'm racing against some tough guys down there at the beach and in Florence and Nashville and where we went to run and um I started taking it pretty serious, but I don't know that anyone else realized that or was taking it as serious as I was and um cuz like you know when when we won a race at Myrtle Beach and I came home, put the trophy up on the on top of the Lance Cracker machine and couldn't wait for dad to walk in there that morning to see it. He walks in, looks at the trophy, and said, was Robert Powell not there? Because that was a guy that we were trying to beat <laughs> yeah, every week. Yeah. Or Charlie Powell. We were racing Charlie Powell third, and Robert Powell and Sean Graham. And, you know, those guys down there were Kevin Prince. Those guys were winning the races, and we were running behind them every week. And uh, he said, they must have not been there. And I was like, yeah. well, come on now. You know? <laughs> yeah. And uh, so, I mean, it, there was never a comment. or a co- We never sat down and had a conversation about, you know, all right, if this goes well, we might run this Xfinity race. I really don't even know how that Myrtle Beach Xfinity race that I ran in 1996 came about. I don't even remember how that opportunity was presented to me or how we put the guys together to do it. I know all the people that went down there to help me. It was Wesley Sherrill, who works at Gibbs now. He's been a car chief, a chat uh, uh, uh setup guy he's been everything over at uh gibbs and he's he's uh very successful for his for himself he's uh he came to work at uh he came to work for me on a late model team he's my age he didn't know really much more than i did about cars and he worked for free for three months i brought him in there hoping dad would hire him on minimum wage dad said i ain't hiring anybody Wow. To work on this car, he sa- I said, well, Wesley, maybe if you work there hard for about a month or two and show him your initiative, that he'll hire you. So that's what happened. And so Wesley and me, you know, got presented this car, this this Bush car to go. Um, first off, actually, I went to, they sent me to, I think, Charlotte Motor Speedway. And I had never been around anything but a little half mile in a late model car, and they sent me to Charlotte Murray Speedway with an old car of Tony Urie's. Tony Sr., Tony Jr., and all of them were there. Jeff Green comes to shake the car down. He goes out and runs and uh, runs whatever lap time. And uh, then they sent me out there in the car, and it was one of their cars because it was black with an orange interior. And I went out there and ran like four laps and crashed. <laughs> <laughs> and my laps though were welcome really to the big race right. son <laughs> i went i drove i just didn't know whether i yeah. needed to drive it further in the corner and i just kept going further and further and further until i bottomed out i, I went down into turn one and hit the ground and uh landing because i went t- way too deep into the corner on the throttle and it hit the ground and i i corrected the wheel and spun the car out apparently though my laps were really fast and dad got on top dad got on to Tony Sr. and them, when we got home, he goes, why didn't you tell him how that he's running fine? He didn't need to run no harder. Yeah. And they were like, it's only like the fourth lap. Like, we hadn't <laughs> even had a chance to get on top of the hauler to see what he was Hadn't doing. even got the radios out. Right. <laughs> but I thought then and there, I got out of the car, and I sat down on the ground with my hand, my face in my hands, thinking, well, that's the end of my future. Right? Yeah. yeah. And because uh, I thought, man, when you wreck, you're done. Uh, nobody's going to keep building cars for you if you reckon everyone they put on the racetrack. So 
I wrecked that car, and I didn't think I'd ever get a chance to do anything beyond late models and late model stock cars. And then somehow or another, they said, you know, Dad and them said, you should, we're going to go run you at the beach. And they had a backup, old backup car of theirs. Again, Jeff Green still driving with Tony Sr. On, on Dad's Xfinity team at that period of time. They gave us a car, and a lot it was uh, a lot of the guys that went to help us were mechanics and, and shop guys, people that didn't travel um that uh you know wanted to help us and we had a patchwork group and it cost us on pit road we got lapped you know on pit road wesley was changing tires he'd never changed tires before (laughs) but we got lapped on pit road and that and that's how we got a lap down we ended up 14th and we were fast we're really fast we qualified seventh i think and we were passing for six when jason keller and i got together in turn four and we spun out and i had jason keller sort of in the back of my mind for the rest of my career like i was going to get him back you know jason keller i know it (laughs) well he so we go long story short i'm rambling here but we qualified really good and i'm like i'm like man this is great you know i'm i'm i can do this i can i can do this and i know we're at myrtle beach a track that i'd ran at for three years in the late models but I felt like, wow, I'm, I'm running against some of the best guys in this series. And the race starts, and I didn't know anything about saving tires. I'd been running at Myrtle Beach for three years, still ain't figured out how to save tires. And that's that's a track yeah, that yeah. is imperative that you save. I was I had not learned that yet, really understood that, that, that sort of strategy. And I'm out there running as hard as I can, and I know they probably weren't. Jeff and, and Jason weren't really giving it all they had, but I was – Running over them, right? Trying not to. I was, I was just running over them so fast, and I just couldn't really get underneath either one of them to make a pass. Well, Jeff Green popped Jason Keller in the back, going into turn three, and shot Jason way up the track. And Jason came straight down the track to hit Jeff in the door and missed intentionally. He was coming down the track <laughs> because he was hot after Jeff Green. Okay, All and right. I was tucked under Jeff Green's bumper, and he came down in the door into the right side of my car. And it just turned me right around. So I hit Jason in the left rear tire. And Jason's, you know, it just spun me right out coming off of turn four. And I was so mad because I'm sitting there in great position. The race ain't 20, 30 laps old. And here I am spun out. Now I got to go to the back. And uh, we came down pit road, got lapped. You know I'm going to have to call Jason and get his side of this story. Sure. (laughs) Uh, For the rest of you know, for for the much you know, for many years beyond that, I was thinking I'm gonna get Jason Keller back one day. You know, and eventually I, I matured and thought he, you know, he probably had no idea I was even there. Yeah. But yeah. Um. Obviously, I never got him back. But we had a great run. We I spun some people out too that day. Uh, ten feet away, I think. <laughs> so I'm sure I made a few guys mad myself. But we had a I, that that was sort of the moment where I went, man. You know, I can. I'm fast enough, right? I might not know how to put yeah. the whole race together, yeah. but but I'm not slow, you yeah. know? And you never know that until you really get out there and get to run against those guys. And then we went to, uh, we got, so they had this old car. That I think they, I remember it was chassis number five, car number five, something like that. They gave it to me and Wesley and Kevin Bono Mannion, who had moved down from the north to come work. He'd moved down with yeah. Steve Park and, so Steve's now driving for DEI uh, in the Bush series, an AC Delco car. They gave us their this old car they didn't want it anymore. Weren't going to use it. Car number five. And we put that car together and in a, took our little gooseneck, late model trailer, and took it to Michigan. 
And I was like, man, I, ain't got, I hadn't. I remember driving up there uh, with Bono driving the the dually and Wesley in the back and and whoever else was with us and going. I don't even know what I'm getting myself into. I've never been on. You know, I wrecked at Charlotte. That was a year ago. I've ran Myrtle Beach and and um, <laughs> you know, I yeah. tried to run a couple other races and had some troubles with the motors and and different things. So I hadn't had no had no laps really, but. Um, we went up there to Michigan and ran eighth or something. And I remember um, running with Dale Jarrett for a while, and I kind of bumped him in turn two and <laughs> moved, yeah. you know, to get by him. And the hard, it was so hard to get a run on guys because the cars were really down on power, and you're in the throttle a lot. And uh, I had this really nice little run, and I was like, I gotta take it, I gotta take it, and, and I had to kind of go through him uh, at one point to get to, get to position. And um, and he got out instead of being mad, was like, man, that was like his dad would do. And that was such a great compliment. He said that over and over uh, throughout his career that he never will forget that moment yeah. that we had on the back <laughs> on turn two there. But I, that was another early sort of moment in my career, especially, uh, you know, running a one-off race in a, in a car that was sort of a castaway with a bunch of guys sort of pieced together to make a team. That was a moment where I thought, you know, man, I I can do it. I can I can really do this because I didn't think that in the late models. I won one, I won two or three races out of 159 starts. Tons of second place finishes, lots of <laughs> lots of thirds and fourths. But I just wasn't a winner, and I didn't know, you know, how that competition stacked up against what was going on in the Xfinity series, much less the Cup level. But when I went there and ran, and I qualified on the pole at Bristol in Ed Whitaker's car. Uh, led a few laps. I didn't know how to put races together. You know, I'd run in the back of somebody and spin myself out or wreck with lap cars, and I just didn't know what I was doing. Uh, but I was fast, you yeah. know, and, and I had – that gave me hope and, and also got me some – got other people looking at me for the first time in my life going, this kid's got us – got it. You know, this kid's got something. Fast, but maybe not polished. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That was the yeah. first time that I'd ever really even been considered fast <laughs> in my career. <laughs> yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? No, yeah. Nobody was watching me in the, at Myrtle Beach. Nobody was, nobody of importance that would help me later in my career was ever watching me run those races. Dad never saw me run a late model race. Yeah. Tony Sr. hardly saw me ever run a late model race. It sounds like that during this whole process, you'd had a lot of help, but. You were more or less on your own, right? With the late model cars yeah. and the 159 races I ran, I had a little help from Gary Hargett uh, starting out. I moved. I, Gary Hargett had a shop down in Union, Cal Union County, South, uh, North Carolina, right, right or, well, north of Union County, and in Marshville. And it had a dirt floor, and he had his own car, had a stock clip on it, and we're going to go racing. We went racing, and we ran together for a year or two. And then dad said, you can move your cars up here and work on them. I was like, you crazy? Heck yeah, I'll do that. I got to do it. <laughs> yeah. I got to do it. Because yeah. down there where Gary was, I was only getting to see my car a couple times a week, if that. Wasn't getting to really learn as much as I wanted to, being as hands-on as I wanted to. I was working on Kelly's cars, helping her get to Tri-County and race where she wanted to run. But I wanted to work on my own cars. Gary didn't want to make that drive, so I now have the car in my hands. And that's when I got Wesley to come help me. And me and Wesley ran my late model program for the final two years on just our own knowledge. I got Gary did give me his setup book that we'd been using. I just sort of went off of those notes. And me and Wesley went to the track. And when it was tight or loose, we decided what to do to it. Now that we didn't know what we were doing, you know. And I would 
I mean, we were really just going by the basics. We had a eight, we had a pair of 800s in the front, a pair of 200s in the back, and I'd put spring rubbers in the, back, in the rear springs depending on the balance of the car in practice. And we pretty much went to the track with the same nose weight, the same wedge, all the same front geometry every single week. We didn't know any better to try to explore and get outside the box. And we just, you know, we that we were the only two guys with our hands on it. We we cleaned the truck. We we straightened up the hauler after every race we dismounted and mounted all our tires we cleaned up the car and fixed the car and and it was all hands-on and it was great i didn't perform well as i probably could have had i had some more experienced help with me to help the car find some more car right. speed but right. yeah. i mean find some more speed in the car but yeah I, it was great to get some real mechanical knowledge and some appreciation of how to how to yeah. get the car up and down the, down the road and to the racetrack and back home and all that stuff. Now, Steve Park moved up to Cup in 1997, mm-hmm. and you had no idea you were in line no. to race that car until you saw your name over the door when you were in the shop. That's right. right. You didn't have any idea? No clue. So, really? honest to God, no clue. So, <laughs> I had ran, you know, I had that Myrtle Beach race under my belt in 96, had the decent finish at uh, Michigan that, that got me a lot of attention. Set on the pole in Ed Wicker's car. Qualified pretty good at California in Ed's car, but we had the wheel, wheel bearings come out of the back of the car. Um, ran in the top 10 at Watkins Glen before the motor broke going up the S's in a car that I, me and Wesley put together um, an old Steve Grissom channel lock car that we had <laughs> bought from a guy and me and Wesley took it and raced it was bad uh, old, that was four old, or five years old old stuff oh wow yeah, yeah. Um, compared to what we was racing against and we went to um, Nashville with it and had trouble it was blowing oil out of the oil tank we couldn't figure out what to do and Anyways, you know, I, I just had a lot of, you know, mishaps and, and almost could have beens and all that should have was and all that stuff happened in, in 97 with, with about eight, uh, the five or eight Xfinity races I ran. And so I and dad had said, OK, uh, the late mile program in 1997 was out of money. Our, pro, our sponsorship was a three year deal. And that was 94, 96, 95, 96. And 97, dad said, I don't I can you're not running on my dime. You don't have any money. I got eight late model races that year. And then those little bit of Xfinity races wow. I ran. Okay. That's all I ran in 97. So the late model car is sitting there on blocks <laughs> and ain't got no money to run it. And I'm sitting there thinking, well, I, I called, uh, I called, um, gosh darn it, down in Florida. He owned that four car that um, Dale Shaw was running good in. Finch. Finch, yes. Yeah. So yeah. I called James yeah. Finch. How can you forget James I Finch? I know. I don't know. It slipped my mind. <laughs> I'm getting old. Um, so I called James Finch. And unfortunately for me, I mean, he was in between drivers. I think that Purvis was out of the car and, and, and he was, he had Dale Shaw for a couple races who ran really good. He almost won South Boston. South Boston. One of the best um, races I ever covered. Right. Yeah. So, this is all sort of happening in that moment, but I called him and I knew that he wasn't dead set on a driver. And I said, Hey, you know, I'd, I'd love to drive your car. He goes, I ain't interested. I'm going to keep working a shawl boy for a while. No kid. Yeah. Mm. And, uh, which was, you know, humbling experience yeah. trying to call and reach out to people. I, I called him on my own. I said, dad, I'm going to call some people, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to start with Finch and see if I can get in their car. Do you mind? He's like, as long as it's Chevrolet, I don't care. I was like, all right, because I, I mean, you're not, I don't, I don't, you're not talking to me about anything lining up for me in the future, and I don't have this late my car money, and so I got to do something. And then, anyhow, we get into the the season's over, the off season's going. I'm no, you know, I'm not hearing anything. 
uh, about my future and, and dad's not talking about it. I know they're preparing Steve to move into the uh, cup car and that's, that's what's really got everybody's mind occupied and dad's mind occupied is putting together this cup program, getting it right. The is getting built. That's busy. You know, it's got yeah. everybody's hands tied. I'm thinking, man, I'm the last guy. I'm the last thing on everybody's mind right now in this in this time frame. And I won't. I don't know why I walked over there, but I was over in Tony Uri and uh, Tony Junior's shop where the AC Delco car was kept. And this was eventually would become Michael Waltrip's cup shop. Right. But it's uh it's a bit of a satellite building compared to the big Taj Mahal that DEI is. This building's down the street about 300 400 yards. And I walked in there to borrow something or ask Tony Jr., Tony Sr. something to do with nothing. And walked in there, my name was on the roof of one of the cars. And <laughs> they knew I was coming for whatever reason. I told them or called them about something. And I walked in there, and I saw that name on there, and they was smiling from ear to ear because like, they get this sort of – Look on their face like they're pulling one over on you, or they're every, yeah. you know, they're they're yeah. get. That's the way them Tony Jr. and Tony Senior are. Is like they they love messing with people, and I felt like they were messing with me. I was like, man, y'all better not. This why why is that name on there? <laughs> Whose idea was it to pull this yeah. prank? Yeah, this is dirt low. I mean, this is this <laughs> yeah. Is, I bet that's what you said. <laughs> I was so I was I was sure it was a joke. My initial reaction right out of the gate was like, man, this is a, this is messed up. And uh, I almost wanted to cry because I'm thinking my career's over with and here they're going to play a joke on me and I ain't got no direction. I don't know what I'm going to do for a living. Um, and uh, they were like, no, man, you're going to drive it. I was like, what? I was like, why come daddy didn't tell me this? Like, why? Where? where is this cool conversation that me and dad could have had about all this? Yeah. And uh, they were like, I don't know, but, man, you're going to do it. Now, how long before the season was this? In my, If I can remember correctly, it was uh, January. So no. it was like a month before Daytona. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> it feels like it was. It feels like it was really, really, uh, it had been, it was after Christmas. It wasn't really, in, you know, it wasn't in November or 1st of December. It was, it was getting close to, because that's why it was so shocking uh, to find out at that moment because I was like man how come dad wouldn't I mean we've had all this time we've had like a month and a half or whatever since the end of the season and if y'all how long have you known this how long did when did what was the conversation like that you had with that so Tony Sr. said him and dad sat down and started talking about drivers and couldn't really come to any uh, decision that they were in love with and Tony Sr. said man why don't you you're gonna you know I think dad was uh the budget on that car was great. AC Delco was a great partner, but I think Dad was spending a couple hundred grand himself on it. And Tony Sr. said to Dad, if you're going to spend your own money, why don't you spend it on your family? And Dad thought, put Dale Jr. in there? Like, you think he can do it? And Tony Sr. said, we'll find out. I think I can work with him and get him going. Yeah. So, Because Tony Sr. had been in those Xfinity races that I'd ran, and he must have seen something that gave him some confidence. Well, yeah. But Dad sure. wasn't able to see, or Dad wasn't, a, you know, Dad's, so busy with his cup stuff. And so Tony Sr. is the reason why I got that opportunity because he convinced Dad that it was a it was better than any other alternatives. And so Dad said, sure, I guess. And then to that, I mean, me and Dad still never, you know, I don't even remember a memorable moment the next time I saw Dad and went, man, I can't believe it, thank you, or anything yeah. like that. There was none of that. Um, 
next thing I know, I'm doing a photo shoot with the car and and talking about Daytona and and thinking, oh my God, I'm going to run a whole season. <laughs> I got all yeah. these tracks I got to go to. I've never been to. I'm lost. Like I'm freaking out. Started panicking about the pressure that it brought and measuring up to not just my expectations, but everyone else. Yeah. You know, that was, uh, that's when all that started setting in pretty quick. At Darlington Raceway, tradition comes alive. Here's Bill Elliott out of turn number four. Harold Kinder has the checkered flag in hand, and Elliott takes it and wins the Winston Million and the Southern 500. 70 years of racing at the track too tough to tame. David Pearson wins the 1977 Southern 500. Come celebrate the 90s with us at Darlington Raceway on Labor Day weekend. And Earnhardt will win his second Southern 500. His sixth victory at the Darlington Raceway in South Carolina, Jeff Gordon will win. Mark Martin makes it four wins in a row. To purchase tickets, call 866-459-RACE. Alan Kowicki races off turn number three and back to start finish to take the checkered flag. Or visit DarlingtonRaceway.com. The measure of a career winning a Southern 500. Yeah, baby, Bring the family and relive the history. Richmond gets the checker and Tim Richmond wins the Southern 500. South Carolina, just right. Steve, you've been around this sport for a long time. What is your earliest memory of Dale Earnhardt Jr.? I'm up at Dale's house in Dooley. North Carolina on the shores of Lake Norman, and uh, Dale is there with Teresa and the kids, the littlest kid being Junior, and he is just uh, pretty much cavorting around the house doing what young boys do. I don't think he's getting in any trouble, but I remember Dale Sr. saying, Dale Jr., I want you to settle down now, and I thought to myself, he's not really doing anything. <laughs> just being a boy. But that's the way Dale saw his role as a father. That was a nice segue. Dale Sr. got Dale Jr., Kelly, and Carrie a sponsorship from Western Steer for their late models. But that was about it, Steve. When Dale Jr. talked about Dale Sr. never once coming to one of his late model races, I don't, I don't know, that man. That, that got me an old ticker. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't know what the dynamic was there, well, but what was that There are two like? things here to come into play. I know this first one because Dale told me himself he was going to try very, very hard not to give those kids anything that would put them in a position to be successful without doing it on their own. He was perfectly content to find some sponsorship for them. Beyond that, they were going to have to take the hard knocks and learn how to race and how to build a race car and work on a race car on their own. He wasn't going to hand them anything. But there's a second part to this. Dale Sr. was not a man to show great affection. Now, I know where he got this from because I've talked to many members of the Earnhardt family over the years. His father, Ralph, was pretty much the same way. Uh, it's not that he didn't love his kids. Absolutely, he did. He was just a man not showing much affection. And Dale Sr., as his son, also had to come up from the ground up as a race driver. 
I don't recall him ever telling me that his father gave him anything. I mean, you know, gave him some tools and said, come here in the garage and go to work. That's what you're going to have to do. And that was the same attitude that Dale took as a father and as a tutor to his children. Learn on your own. Learn the best you can. And that's pretty much it. Certainly, I would never presume to comment on the family dynamic because who knew what was going on? As much as I knew, as I've already said. Yeah. A couple of weeks ago, Kelly Earnhardt was on Dell Jr.'s podcast. And to hear them talking about the house fire at their mom's house. And Dell Jr. comes out and basically the whole house is on fire. And that, that was just a chilling account. And then there's the whole dynamic with she who must not be named. <laughs> okay. And I, I certainly can't put myself in that category, but I do know what it's like for your dad to be married to somebody that you don't exactly get along with. After my mom passed away with breast cancer in 1989, my dad remarried and, well, let's just put it this way. We had religious differences. I was Baptist and she was the Antichrist. (laughs) (laughs) Those are major differences, by the way. You know, so I'm sure that that played into it. But then he evolves in his late model career. And then in 1996, he runs a Bush Series race at Myrtle Beach. Gets into it with Jason Jason Keller, man. How do you get into it with Jason Keller? I didn't know that was possible. <laughs> From what I knew about Jason Keller, I didn't know it was possible either. And then in 1997, they run a, a handful of races, and that was my first year as the Bush Series editor at Scene. And so I was at Hickory when Dell Jr. came rolling in with his late model rig with the dually and the gooseneck trailer. And I'm going to be completely honest. I was probably one of those that said, well, here comes money. Here comes a rich kid. Here comes a spoiled kid. Then he hopped out, and Steve, he didn't have a single sponsor patch on his uniform. His uniform was completely plain. That might not have been the way Gale Sr. wanted it, but I can tell you one thing. He didn't object at all. In fact, this went in line with what he was trying to do with his kids racing career, not to give them anything and not to interfere. Now, if Dale Jr. can survive in such a situation where he comes out there with nothing on his uniform to suggest a sponsor while people are thinking he's got a silver spoon in his mouth, and to get through that shows you that he really wanted to be a race driver. Then, again, I got to go back to Dale Sr. not going to any of the late model races Dell Jr. comes into the Bush Series shop and sees this blue number three AC Delco car, but there's something different about it. It's got his name, name on it, yeah. his name over the door. And that's how he found out that he had that ride for the 1998 season. Well, if I had been Dale Sr., I might have said something to Dale Jr. before all of this. But Dale Sr. certainly wasn't the kind of guy that was going to have uh, confetti and blowing whistles and streamers all over the place saying, Welcome to the Bush Series, my son. Uh-uh. He, he was not that type at all. And I think what he did in this way was to maintain his true image as a father, what he really felt. I've said before, not a whole lot of affection. Well, that was maintained this way. But at the same time, he had to be smiling because not only did he say to his son, I'm giving you a, a ride in the Bush Series with a full sponsorship. 
he also said in this way, hey, I'm proud of you. Well, Steve, I'm going to go way out on a limb and maybe risk ticking off a lot of Earnhardt fans. I think he should have told him. So Dell Jr. gets this ride. He goes to Daytona. He's never been on Daytona that I know of. Mm-hmm. A lot of these racetracks he's never seen. And, yeah, he goes out and he does pretty well for himself. Absolutely. And in the end, even though it was pretty quiet and came with no fanfare and not even a spoken word, his father did reward his son and gave him the boost he needed to continue his career. Follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. And Steve, this week, going to be talking about the Dover issue of Winston Cup scene and told Brian about it. And he's come up with a Dover Downs black t-shirt, size large, with a big old dinosaur on the front. Dinosaur? Kind of looks like Godzilla. I, I don't remember that. I know that the, Miles the monster, but the I don't monster think he's a monster. Yeah, yeah. I don't think he's a dinosaur. <laughs> so check out that t-shirt, size large, black t-shirt, Dover Downs with the big old dinosaur on the front. Brian, thank you so much for your support. Follow Brian on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens, and the inventory can be found at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, Monday, I was in Hutchison, Kansas for an event at the Kansas Cosmosphere. And believe it or not, the nicest space museum that I've ever visited is the Kansas Cosmosphere. They've got the original Apollo 13 command module that brought that crew home safely. Awesome facility. Wow. And this is in Hutchison, Kansas? It's in Hutchison, Kansas. (laughs) Now, thanks to the massive stash of papers that I got from Jamie Bishop, I had some extras that I felt comfortable enough to take on the road with me to the airport and hotel to read. Certainly, the issues I just have one of, I would want to make sure that I preserve. And I took four issues with me, completely at random. Just reached into the tub and pulled out four. Steve, they are all just crammed. I mean, page after page of content. Now, the one that I kind of picked out was September 21st, 1995 issue, covered the fall race at Dover. Jeff Gordon led four times for a total of 400 laps. The racing was so much better back then, but <laughs> let's not go there. And that was still at a time when Dover was a 500-mile race. That made for a long, long, yes, long day. And I don't know that I wasn't a little bit happy when they shortened it to 400 miles because it seemed like it made for better competition. Well, I think it did, and you are not alone in being happy for it going to 400 miles. Plenty of drivers were very, very happy, too. Well, I think at the end of a 500-mile race at Dover, I don't think you were talking so much about racing as you were simply survival. Just make it to the end of the day and get it over with. (laughs) That was, and another track was that way, was Rockingham. Yes. Uh, There were a lot of drivers that felt the same way about Rockingham. And uh, Rockingham, and like Dover, with the length, was not an easy race. No. Rockingham was, what, 492 laps? That made for a long day, too. Now, in this race, Jeff Gordon won, and he gained 30 points in the Winston Cup standings. 
to go to 309 over Dale Earnhardt with six races to go. I think for old Dale there, I believe that the writing was on the wall. <laughs> yeah, Jeff went on <laughs> to win the title in 1995. That was his first of four. Jeff Gordon winning at that time, I don't know that it was exactly a shocker, but who finished second that day, Steve? Bobby Hamilton, driving for Richard Petty. Yes. Now that was a story. That was their best finish since 1987 when Richard had finished second at Bristol right. to Dale Earnhardt. Right. That's a long time. Yeah, that's a very long time, especially for Petty Enterprises. And the car that Bobby was driving that day <laughs> was what crew chief Robbie Loomis called the team's concrete car. Now, <laughs> now you read that at face value and you think, well, they just ran it on tracks that were concrete like Dover and Bristol. When you read what happened to that car, you kind of get the sense that, yeah, it was indestructible because it had run earlier in the year in Dover's first race, but it got caught up in a big crash on just the second lap of the race. I was there that day, and it seemed like cars were never going to stop wrecking. <laughs> and, I mean, they're off turn four. Then they took it to the Bristol night race, and... They wrecked again. <laughs> you might say the concrete car was crumbling. <laughs> so after Bristol, they put a new front clip on the car, and voila, Bobby finishes second in Dover's second race of the year. Great effort on Bobby's part and great effort on Robbie Loomis and his guys for putting that car back together again to run as well as it did at Dover. Now, Bobby said in the paper, Dover's usually the toughest place we come to because of the wear on the driver. That baby ran so sweet today, we could have run another 200 laps. Nah, I don't <laughs> no, you know. Nah. <laughs> the media would have left. <laughs> it just shows what we can do. We've been pecking away all year. We've been picking race cars. We'd run one one week, and it wouldn't be that good, and we'd put all the bad race cars in one corner, and I think for the remainder of the season, we can be real good. You know, Bobby had a good year with Petty Enterprises in 1995, but he had an even better one in 1996, which was the last year he spent with the team. He had one win at Phoenix and then two pole positions. So not a bad year in 1996 with Petty Enterprises, especially when you consider by this time, uh, Petty Enterprises was not remotely close to what it had been in the past. I was appreciative of the fact that I was finally able to see the number 43 car run up front. Because when I came into the sport, Richard was well past his heyday. Certainly, it had been several years since his last victory. And to see that 43 up front, yeah. You talk about a throwback, that was it. Yeah, absolutely. I think all Petty fans would agree with you. It was so nice to see their favorite car run up front again. And our buddy Rick Mast beat out Jeff Gordon for the pole by 41 one-thousandths of a second. It was his third career pole. But, Steve, this was the first pole that he won that wasn't overshadowed by some other event. Well, he did win the pole for the inaugural Brickyard 400 in 1994. Well, you remember when he won his first pole? 1992, Hooters 500. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah so he was on the pole for Richard Petty's last race and got taken out in yeah. lap two. His day didn't last very long, and it didn't last as long as he would have liked at Dover. Rick had an engine go bad, and he was credited with a 28th place finish, 61 laps down. Now, now, that's it for the Winston Cup race coverage. And let's talk about the Bush Series race. Johnny Rumley wins. 
in the big Johnson car. <laughs> and we could and we could obviously talk about that, but Steve, the thing that leaped off the page to me in the Bush series coverage was a photograph in the photo spread by Jerry Zezza. And it was a picture of Patrick Beckley, the catch can man for Laughlin Racing driver Doug Heveron. And Steve, Patrick is on fire. Hmm. He is on fire. And Jerry Zezza, the photographer, and I don't remember him. I don't either. I don't remember him being involved with seeing a lot, but he was in the right place at the right time to capture this photo. He was maybe three or four feet away. And as Patrick is running away from this pit stop where this fire has erupted, there are flames literally trailing off both legs and up his back. Yeah, it's a frightening photo. And I'm telling you, I cannot think of any worse thing than to be on fire. And that photograph captured a very real sense of terror. There's no way to overstate that, but I don't know if Jerry won any awards for that, but it was an all-timer. By all means. And it also was a photograph that made you very, very aware of the dangers that exist in the pits. Well, you know, that was the third fire that weekend. Bush Series driver Brian Donnelly, his car had become engulfed in flames during practice Friday when an oil line came loose as he was driving down the backstretch. I don't guess he wrecked, but that oil line came loose, and all of a sudden, he's sitting in a ball of fire. And then in Winston Cup qualifying just a little bit after that, Terry Fisher's car was in flames when he wrecked. Both of those guys were uninjured. Patrick wasn't so lucky. He was hospitalized in serious condition with burns to his face, but he was upgraded to fair condition the next morning. And NASCAR official Fred Sharples, I think, fared even worse because he was initially listed in critical condition with extensive burns to his face, his arm, his hand, and his left leg in this same accident that Patrick was hurt in. And Fred was later upgraded to stable and then to fair condition. And in this accident, the third person that was hurt was gas man Terry Hunsinger, who had second-degree burns to his hand and forearm. Don't believe that he was hospitalized, so I don't think that they were quite as serious as what Fred and Patrick had endured. But, Steve, I go back to that photo. Our photographers were some of the best in the business, and we had many, many, many very powerful photographs in that paper. You can't say that one is better or more powerful or more poignant than the next, but this photo of Patrick Beckley on fire, there was none that was more powerful. Might have been as powerful. Right. But this was pretty intense. Well, the thing about our photographers back then and all the way through the existence of scene is the fact that they not only knew their photography, they knew racing. And seeing what was going on during the course of the race and in the pits, they knew where to be because they figured something might occur at that point. And more times than not, they were exactly right and able to get the photo. That's the Bush Series coverage. But then we go into the features. And there's a feature story that I did on Jocko Majacomo. Here we go. Rick Hughes <laughs> blast from the past. Take it away, Rick. Jocko Majacomo. Now, most race fans, if they remember Jocko, they're going to remember him for more than likely one thing. Yes, and I know what it is. What would it be? Bobby Allison's serious bad wreck in yeah. 1988 at Pocono. 
Jocko was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, and he T-boned Bobby, and Bobby's life hung in the balance for quite some time. Jocko himself wasn't unscathed. He wound up with fractured bones in his left leg, broken ribs, and 26 stitches to close up a gash in his chin. And those injuries were not mentioned in scene or any other publication at the time because no one knew. The focus was pretty much on Bobby. Exactly. And and Jocko gets something of a bad rap on this uh, accident. It turns out that when the race started, Bobby had a leaking tire. Yes. He radioed it back to the crew that it was leaking. He stayed on the track. The cars were two abreast. And by the time he got to the second turn, he lost control of the car, hit the wall, bounced off the wall, and was hit by Jocko. Now, Jocko, like you said, was simply in the wrong place at the wrong time. And the injuries to Bobby were tremendous. He had a cerebral concussion, trauma to his abdomen, broken thigh bone, and other injuries. I went to the hospital in Allentown the next day, and we got a report on Bobby that said he was going to make it, but he had a long road ahead of him when it came to rehab. And Bobby, sure enough, went that long road, but he never drove a race car again. And Jocko didn't drive much. Mm -hmm. He ran one race at Watkins Glen a couple of months later, and that turned out to be his very last Winston Cup event. He failed to qualify at Charlotte and at Rockingham. His dad had raced everything from motorcycles to midgets to stock cars in New England. Jocko eventually followed into his dad's footsteps and won the 1976 SCCA Trans Am Category 2 Championship and then decided that he wanted to go Winston Cup race in the next year. And over the years, he made spot starts. I think he made something like 20, 22, 23 total starts and then came Pocono. And he had to kind of get past the injuries that he sustained there. He also had to, you know, I think people were kind of pointing fingers at him. All that happened. And then at Rockingham, he's on the grid to try to qualify at Rockingham, and he gets a phone call saying that his uncle had died. He'd been through a divorce. One thing led to another, and that was it for his career. He said, in this story, I'd done racing for 18 years at that point. I just got to the peak where I had that million-and-a-half-dollar sponsorship for the following year coming in. I had everything starting to go in place. Then all these things came on me all at once. I said, you know what? I'm tired of getting beat from every angle. Why do I need this anymore? I simply went home one day after Rockingham, went to the funeral, referring to his uncle's funeral, and after I left the funeral, I said, that's it. Everything's for sale. He concluded and he said, I think I had almost four or five race cars. I sold it all within 60 days and I was out of the business. But the accident had nothing to do with it. And you know, Rick, I don't think anybody knew all of this until you wrote it in that story. That was a complete and thorough story about Jocko. You know, I know that when I read it, it meant a lot to me for one reason and one reason only. To learn something about Jocko the man other than the guy that wrecked Bobby Allison. Well, in the story that I did, he does address the accident and his memories of that, and his account is pretty chilling. He had nowhere to go. Now, I think some of the criticism that came his way was the whole racing back to the caution flag thing. 
And whether he should have lifted, whether he shouldn't have, whether he didn't have the experience of some of his other competitors, who's to say? And Steve, we're not finished yet. There was also a feature story on Del McCower. No. (laughs) Yes. This story by Godwin Kelly, (laughs) it was packed with quotes. He said, at one point, Delma said, I've prayed for more horsepower, but I don't think that will work. I've thought positive about all the hard workers on my crew. That's why I have a veterinarian working with us, because I treat those men like dogs. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You know, Delma was a great piano player, and he liked to have a good time. Delma always said, well, I never won a race, but I I never lost a party. party. And there was another point where Godwin's talking to Delma, and Delmer describes a situation where his garage stall at Charlotte was struck by lightning. And Delma said, it scared me to death. I went to church early to beat the Easter rush. (laughs) If I was in that stall with him, I'd been at that church too. (laughs) That's one thing. And then we get into the scene on the circuit section, the news items and everything. And there's news that Richard Petty might, be considering running for Secretary of State in North Carolina, which he eventually did. And lost. And lost. (laughs) Well, you know, that's a completely different issue. I love his quote about running for Secretary of State. He said he couldn't screw up the job half as bad as somebody else might because he would be going racing half the time. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, this issue is slam-packed with content. And every other issue that I took with me to Kansas was absolutely as packed with content. Steve Scene produced nearly 2,000 issues, and they're all like this. And I think that's one of the reasons why I am so driven to see that they're all somehow, some way preserved, and someday, hopefully, maybe made available in an online archive. Now, some way, somehow, I want to see this done. Well, I think you've got a very, very noble pursuit right there, Rick. And yeah, I'm somewhat biased, but I'd like to see seen available online just as well because I think there's so much for fans to read and learn from seen that it should be made available to them. And I hope it is in the future. Hi, I'm Kirk Shelmerdine, and you're listening to the Scene Vault Podcast. Y'all be careful going home. Use your turn signal, wear your seatbelts, and get the hell out of the left lane! Steve, old buddy, I believe we might just have to give away some more books. Okay by me. Because we continue to get awesome reviews on iTunes. I have to share a couple. On iTunes, Big Mac 6045 writes, I love this podcast. As a kid in the 1990s, I cut my teeth on many of the stories that have been revisited here. Yes, I've worked my way through all of them. It has also allowed me to remember stories my dad told me of racing when he was a kid and young man. Being an Alabama native, I loved the Bobby Allison episodes. What hooked me were the interviews y'all had with Jeff Bodine and Dave Marcus. Those two men were always among my favorites. Now, he included the hashtag Bobby Allison 85 time winner. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. 
Hashtag Bobby Allison, 85-time winner. Yes, sir, Big Mac, 6045. I absolutely agree with you. Hey, Big Mac, you've got a new friend in Rick. (laughs) And also Mike Corvin, who also happens to be a Patreon supporter, and he posted a review on iTunes that says, if you wanted all the dirt on asphalt racing, Grand National slash Winston Cup slash NASCAR scene, was the ultimate Insider's Weekly newspaper to read during the halcyon days of racing. Halcyon. Big word. Oh, there you go, Mike. Halcyon days of racing. Each week, award-winning riders like Gene Granger, Deb Williams, Gary McCready, Steve Wade, and Rick Houston would bring you the straight dope, and in doing so, left a detailed written history that deserves to be remembered. The aforementioned aforementioned another big word we should have hired mike (laughs) (laughs) the aforementioned rick and steve bring nascar history to life with each podcast that includes in-depth interviews with all the drivers crew and officials and stories that will astound even the most die-hard know-it-all fans each episode is about an hour and leaves the listener entertained enlightened and is sure to jog the memory of the old timers as well as educate the newcomers to the sport so what are you waiting for, race fans? Subscribe and listen to this podcast today. boy, Mike. Thanks very much. Listeners, reviews don't get much better than that, and reviews like that are what keep us going, along with Patreon support. <laughs> Patreon.com slash The Scene Vault podcast. PayPal.me slash The Scene Vault podcast. This is our 50th episode, and you guys have made it possible for us to continue with your support. Please do consider supporting us if you haven't already. Steve, thank you for episode 50. Thank you, Rick. And I look forward to episode 51, baby. Stand by, listeners. You are going to like this. 